Welcome back to Redeemed Humanity. My name is Hayden, and thanks again for joining with me. Last time, we went from Genesis to Jesus and looked at the relationship between the sexes and the curse that started in Genesis 3, a cursed relationship between the man and the woman that ultimately resulted from sin and led to a curse between the sexes in general, between men and women. And then we fast forwarded and saw how Jesus confronted and broke this curse in his incarnation, his birth, his his life and his death and his resurrection. And so this week, we're going to see if that makes sense with the rest of the Bible. Because if it is true that the relationship between the sexes was cursed in Genesis and Jesus redeems it in his gospel, then we should see some congruence of that in the rest of the Bible, right? Since the Old Testament is living in the Old Covenant and waiting for the redemption of the new one to come, it looks forward to Jesus and what he's going to bring. So we should expect to see some glimmers of hope for the sexes in the Old Testament. And then in the New Testament, we should be able to see the the joy of the fulfillment of this curse being broken. So that's what we're going to find out today is that the rest of the Bible It does exactly this. It points forward to the hope of the renewal of the sexes, and then it celebrates its arrival in the New Testament. So once again, we're going to open up our Bibles to several different passages that show how the Bible does this. And whenever I get to a new passage, I encourage you again to pause this podcast and read them on your own. Be familiar with them and then listen to the commentary that I'm going to give them. And this is going to be more of like a commentary than the exegesis that we did over Genesis, because I'm not trying to give an exhaustive list of every time human sexuality is referenced in the Bible. Um, But I'm also not picking and choosing with just passages that agree with me either, because the section after this is going to be focusing on passages that sound all antithetical to the redeemed sexuality viewpoint. So before we get there, though, let's open up our Bibles and see what these passages have to say about the sexes and their redeemed humanity. The first passage we're going to look at is Proverbs 8. Proverbs 8 is really interesting because it anticipates this renewal in a way that is incredibly powerful. Now, the wisdom of Proverbs as a whole opens up with nine chapters of speeches and then launches into large chunks of those two-line Proverbs. These speeches create for us like an image of four contrasting and comparing characters who are calling out to the reader and grabbing their attention. Traditionally, they've gone by some different names, but we'll call them Lady Wisdom, Lady Folly, the Wise King, and the Royal Fool. Proverbs 8 is a speech given by Lady Wisdom. 
where she calls out to the reader to listen to her voice rather than the voices of either Lady Folly or the Royal Fool. And here's what she says in verses 8 through 10. All the words of my mouth are in righteousness. There is nothing crooked or perverted in them, except my instruction and not silver, and knowledge rather than choice gold. So in these ways and many others, she is claiming that her wisdom is preferable to the folly of perversion and the foolishness of trusting in riches, which are the two primarily successful ploys of her adversaries. She then stakes her claim to be this cosmically authoritative person. By me, kings reign and rulers decree justice. By me, princes rule and nobles judge rightly. Then she goes on to give us like her credentials in claiming this, this bold authority. She says, The Lord created me at the beginning of his way, before his works of old. From eternity I was established, from the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth. So if we put our observations of her argument together, we get a claim that sounds like this. Lady Wisdom is the forthgoing wisdom of God that is and was with God in the beginning, manifesting herself as righteousness in those who accept her instruction in faith, as opposed to the self-centered and sinful lusts of the flesh's calling. And it's not illogical or blasphemous to draw the really obvious conclusion that Proverbs 8 almost sounds like a description of Jesus. And yeah, it does. And this has actually been a prominent traditional Christian interpretation of those texts for centuries. In fact, this very passage likely had an influence on the gospel writer John's opening statements about Jesus, which make room for the church's comprehension of Jesus's personhood in the Trinity. So, whether or not Lady Wisdom is a type or a pre-incarnate description of Jesus, that's been debated for centuries. But one thing is clear. Proverbs 8 describes a female figure with such authoritative and eternal language that at the very least, she's comparable to the Son. So this is important for our discussion because it is a biblical passage that speaks of God's authority in the highest and most preeminent terms possible and regarding a female figure. One of the main arguments of traditional complementarianism is that God has given males the role of authority in the church and in Christian marriage. In other words, in complementarianism, the role that the male brings to complement the sexes is their authority in those positions. However, Proverbs 8 shows us that there is this biblically cosmic language depicting an equal sexual description of a woman in the same amount of authority as the son has in John's description. To say it differently, the way in which male and female were created to image God is a shadow of the way in which the word and wisdom ultimately do in the scriptures. The second passage we'll be going through is Joel chapter 2, starting in verse 28. 
And the second chapter of Joel is a prophetic word to Israel about this coming army of the north that's going to bring a destructive day of the Lord upon them. But this destruction, it's not assured in Joel's mind. He invites everyone in the land to humbly and honestly repent of their ways and turn back to God. And so Joel then, he paints this picture of the sort of day of the Lord that would come out of such a response from the Israelites of humble repentance. And it's one that would be of bounty in the land and joy and safety for its inhabitants. And then in this climactic moment, Joel prophesies this, It will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy. And your old men will have dreams, your young men will see visions, and even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. So the prophet here, he's envisioning a day when the Lord executes full, quote unquote, judgment on the people because of their repentance, rather than pouring out a cup of wrath, he pours out his spirit. Notice Who receives the pouring out? Sons and daughters, male and female servants. So everyone residing in this blessed land. So perhaps this is a small note to carry on with us, but I think it's actually a prophetic description of what we already saw when we were reading John, that when the curse is undone, or in Joel's words, when the righteous day of the Lord arrives, There's this rightness of relationship that's reestablished between the sexes. This isn't a stretch of interpreting. Look at Acts 15. When the church is debating the place of the Gentiles in the church, it is the outpouring of the Spirit upon them before they have begun to obey the law that leads the church to discern that, in verse 8, God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. So it's the outpouring of the Spirit that is the final word and sign to the Jews that the Gentiles have been accepted into the Lord's family, that the Lord makes no ethnic distinction between them in regard to his spirit or their chosenness. The prophet Joel seems to indicate that the Lord also makes no distinction based on sex between them who he lavishly chooses to pour his spirit upon. So when Peter quotes this very passage in Acts 2, we see that Peter is interpreting the prophecy as being fulfilled at Pentecost at the very moment that he is speaking those words. So this prophetic word, it gives more credit to the interpretation that God's pronouncement in Genesis 3 is a curse of sexual inequality and a disparity that is actually undone by the work of Jesus. And now we see that at Pentecost, human relations are finally redeemed in this indiscriminate outpouring of the Spirit upon his sons and daughters. So as I noted before, there are more places to turn in the Old Testament when we're asking this question of the sexes, but I chose these two passages intentionally because Proverbs 8 shows us that 
God portrays even his highest authority using female language when anticipating Christ's arrival. And Joel shows us that the Spirit does not distinguish between the sexes when he pours out his gifts upon his people. So even in the Old Testament, we see how the sexes are going to be considered equal in authority and gifting when Jesus steps onto the scene. And of course, we've already read about how Jesus does that himself. So now let's turn past the Gospels and see how else this redemption is explored in the Bible. So the last passage we're going to look at before we move on to those passages that sound like they contradict the redeemed humanity viewpoint is Galatians 3. In the opening chapters of the letter to the Galatians, Paul, he addresses salvation about as clearly as he ever does. So he first gives his own testimony and credibility that he has to preach the gospel. And then he recounts a divide in the church that called the question whether one must follow the law to be saved, specifically if one needed to be circumcised. And then after a discourse about how salvation comes not by the law, but by grace through faith in Jesus, Paul springboards into another discourse about what salvation means for the believer. And that's where we're going to pick up Galatians 3.25. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So here Paul is using metaphorical language to describe what it means when a person is saved by the grace of Jesus through faith. He paints this picture of a child being raised on an estate, one who has to follow the rules or the law of the home. But as that child grows into an adult, he no longer has to follow the law because he's given the estate as his inheritance. However, this whole time the law has been directing him and forming him into the kind of man who has the principles of it written on his heart, such that he can now use sound wisdom to run the estate. And that's how Paul describes the law and its relationship to faith. Now that Christ has come, the law is no longer our guardian because Jesus is the son who inherits Abraham's estate of promise. Then Paul also explains that Jesus's inheriting of Abraham's promise is the believers too, because when one is baptized into Christ, they put on Christ. So within his metaphor, he now uses another metaphor of putting on Christ's identity like one puts on a set of brand new clothes such that their friends would exclaim, you look like a whole new you. The believer inherits Abraham's promises to the same degree as Christ because in their baptism of faith, their old identity has died and they are raised to a new life and identity that is Christ. Then comes perhaps the boldest statement ever made in the ancient world. Verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. 
There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Since a believer's new identity is Christ, they're no longer to be seen as an other based on the distinctive categories that the world classifies people with. In the ancient Jewish world, the most important distinction was one's Jewish heritage or lack thereof. Then the other two primary social categories of the day were one's status as being either slave or free, and then male or female. Those distinctive categories would have determined the degree to which you were eligible to participate in ancient Judeo-Roman social structures. Paul makes it clear. When you are baptized into Christ, you are now seen by God in the church as a son, first and foremost. Paul says it like this, But when the fullness of time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is some of the strongest language the Bible has to offer regarding the believer's identity. The claim is so clear. Because of Jesus, the believer can cry to God as Father, as much as Jesus did on the cross, because Jesus' very spirit now lives in them. So to the same degree that Jesus inherits the new world, every believer also inherits it through him. And by the way, if this is a topic that's interesting to you, you should check out Esau McCauley's book, Sharing in the Son's Inheritance. It'll help you get a fuller picture of what that really means. But it seems clear to me that Paul's extremely strong language in this passage shows that he also sees no distinction between the sexes as far as it regards authority in the church and the Christian home. But it's also clear, based on Paul's letters, that he doesn't see human sexuality as something just to be like thrown out either. He regularly addresses men and women separately and in different ways. And in this way, Paul shows that he's actually operating within the framework that Genesis to Jesus lays out regarding the sexes. Or to put it a different way, the redeemed humanity viewpoint of the sexes is a reclamation of the Bible's consistent portrayal of humanity, even in Paul's letters. And that's really the thesis of this section. So that's what the rest of the Bible has to say about the anticipation of the redemption in the Old Testament and the arrival of it in the church in the New Testament. But what do we do with the passages where Paul seems to contradict his own strong language in Galatians? What about those places where he seems to claim that even though both man and woman are sons and heirs having put on Christ, that one has greater authority or designation for leadership than another. 
perhaps a renewed exegesis of these texts is in order now that we have laid the groundwork and we can bring this redeemed category of the sexes with us as an option as we interpret those passages. And that's what we're going to do in not the next episode, but the one after that. Because in the next episode, I want to quickly introduce the exegetical method that I'm going to be using to study. And that's going to be helpful because there are different ways of studying passages. So I just want to be really clear with the way that I'm going to do it. And hopefully you'll see that it is gospel-centered. It points to Jesus and is going to allow Paul's letters not to have any word taken out. They're actually all going to be accounted for in the exegetical method that I use and direct us to Jesus. So thanks for being with me this time. I'm excited to quickly walk through the exegetical method next time, and then we'll get into Paul's letters. Thanks so much for hanging out with me. We'll see you soon.